Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Clean your gun and tune your bow. We're the Hunt Collective Show. Calling hunters new and old. The Hunt Collective Show. Facts are facts and opinions are subjective. You're listening now to the Home Collective. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Hunting Collective. I am, of course, Ben O'Brien, and I'm joined by Phil T. Engineer. What'd you, did you just take a drink of something there, Phil? What was that? It uh, wasn't a White Claw, was it? No, no, it's ten. Oh, I, I, I guess it is noon on a Friday. I, I'd say it's it's open season for White Claw, but <laughs> oh, it was <laughs> it's been open season for at least three hours. <laughs> no, this is a peach pear Lacroix. Peach pear, oh, peach pear. <laughs> you classy one gentleman. Their, one of their more odd flavors that I think is actually pretty good. You're classy gentleman. Well, we got a big uh, a recruitment uh, news today. Um, not only are we going to have Nuri Hong on from our California chapter, which which is by far our hottest chapter. I'm going to say, I'm going to use the term hottest chapter uh, of all the chapters we have in the THC cult uh, chapters. I don't know how to, I still don't know how to kind of like articulate what's going on there, but. So we're going to have Nuri in a minute. He's nobody coming. does. <laughs> nobody does. So Nuri's coming in a minute, but me and Phil, more like I, just had a brilliant idea about how to get more listeners. We were just checking on our uh wi-fi and i had an idea you had a there's somebody near you that has a interesting wi-fi name do they not phil yeah you know some people try to be funny and tell their jokes through their wi-fi their router they names do. i i say don't do that i you're not as funny as you think you are but there's someone yeah. in my neighborhood who has their wi-fi router is named barking dogs screaming toddler which is yeah. just a very passive aggressive message to a lot of the young families in this neighborhood uh and personally i'm offended maybe it's an omission of guilt or it's like a thing that they're saying <laughs> oh, i have sure. barking dogs and screaming toddlers i'm sorry about that that's me. maybe 
you know, label me if you must. I've got, I just pulled mine up. I've got Bippy Link, Demon Portal, It's Amish Time, The Viper Pit, and The Viper Pit Guest. Uh, <laughs> make Wi Fi Great Again, 2G, Marty McWi Fi, 5G. <laughs> Dude, oh, I'm liking Marty, my name. Marty right McWi Fi is solid. That's a good one. <laughs> that's I take a good it back. One. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty good. All right, well, t- I'll take it. I that literally, I just clicked on that. I've never read any of those before, and I'm I'm proud of my neighbors. Uh, so if you're one of my neighbors, well done. Um, but I think here's an idea of how to you know grow the podcast underground. If you have Wi-Fi, which I'm assuming that you do, name it. it you could either name it Phil T Mango, or you could also name it like Listen to the Hunting Collective Podcast. And if we get thousands and thousands of Wi-Fis named after our podcast. I think will grow intrinsically when people are uh, accidentally connect to the Hunting Collective podcast Wi-Fi. They're not going to know what to do about it. They're going to have to listen at that point once they're connected. Right, Phil? Uh, yeah, Ben, sure. They'll have to. Okay, thanks. <laughs> uh, thanks for your support as always. I, before we get to anything else, I do want to say big, su- big stuff coming up in, uh, in my life. It's turkey season. I told you last week about the turkey tour we're doing with First Light. A little bit more detail. We're doing a four-state turkey tour. Uh, I'm going to tell you what the states are. Please don't try to come find me. I'm trying to avoid you. Um, so if you want to come hunt with me, please email. Don't just try to find me in the woods. Uh, we are doing Montana and then South Dakota and then Wyoming and then Nebraska. Four states, two weeks. Uh, I will be out in the field for two straight weeks. Most of that time spent sleeping on the ground in a tent or in a truck or something dirt bag like uh, I couldn't be more excited for this, Phil. How do you does that sound like something you would want to do? Two weeks in the dirt, chase around turkeys. You got to get up at like four every morning, go to bed at like man, I'd say nine. Uh, it's relentless. But I got seven turkey tags I could possibly fill within those fourteen days. I, I mean, I'm excited for you, Ben. Um, I've never been happier for you. I think you're gonna, you're going to have a great time. Um, <laughs> what? <laughs> what about when I had my child like a year ago? Where you have? You're happier now than then. Well, I'm, I'm I'm just trying to gauge your happiness, and to be honest, like you seem way more stoked about this tour, this turkey tour than than having a child. So uh, yeah. I'm I'm just feeding off of your energy here. <laughs> okay, don't blame it on me. But I was just thinking because we have we haven't really got into like the actual logistics of the hunt we're going to do the first week of May. People stop asking me when Phil's first hunt is. By the way, it's the first week of May. I've been saying it for months. First week of May. Um. That's when it's happening, but but would you would you go out for with me for like a week and sleep in tents and chase turkeys, or would you do you think you would you eventually grow tired of, of uh, such exercise? I could probably last last one week. Okay, um, one week, not not okay. much longer. Uh, I don't think that's that's nothing against you. I don't know if I could last <laughs> longer than a week with with anybody except for like my my wife. Uh, <sighs> Okay, I'm just I'm just trying to I'm just trying to secretly gauge where you're at here. How many how many nights I can make you sleep outside to find a turkey? Yeah, I can tell, which turkeys, is why which is why I'm being cagey. I'm trying to I'm I'm not, not trying yeah. to open the door for anything. So yeah, okay, <laughs> you don't want me to be like, hey man, I got a plan. Uh, that's fine. That's all fine. And uh, that so hopefully you guys can all follow along what I'm doing. Benio B three hundred one on Instagram. I'll be posting all kinds of stuff there. But we are doing a bit of a telethon for the National Wild Turkey Federation. We've talked about uh, ways to raise money for them. And really, their, their primary source of, of funding is through memberships. And so we're going to be working with First Light uh, to promote over those two weeks that we're gone. 
to promote the fact that we're out there and then pushing people to a, a page on the First Light website where you can sign up for your NWTF membership or renew it and you'll have a chance at a bunch of awesome prizes, cool gifts if you take part and sign up for membership on that portal through First Light. So if you want to get more details, this will be coming out you know, uh, next week when I'm already on the road, I'm already doing this. So when you're listening to this, you'll be able to go to First Light social media account. You'll be able to firstlight.com. Keep checking there. And this will debut at some point when we're out in the field and it'll go for two weeks. So there'll probably be some delay in terms of us making the content and getting to the airwaves. But um, we'll be checking in next week from Turkey Camp with the likes of Kevin Harlander, probably Ford Van Fossen, Jason Tarwater from NWTF. We've got a bunch of uh, wildlife biologists from the areas that we'll be hunting that will be filling us in on the specific uh, projects from those states. So I'm excited to go turkey hunt, but also excited to shed some light on the important projects, at least in the West, for uh, NWTF, get you to meet some of their folks, and hopefully raise some money for them and get some memberships in the door. Because as we mentioned, uh, they'll be losing some of those this year without really the gatherings and the banquets and the things that they would normally do. So hopefully we can help them. And then I'll be returning, and all my focus when I return will be on Phil. Uh, I already wrote that in my journal. Don't forget about Phil. And uh, I'm going to stick to that. Okay, Phil, are we good? Yeah, thanks, man. means a lot. No, no, no problem. No problem. All right, now we got to bring in Nuri. Nuri, can you hear me? Are you there? I'm here. All right. Um, so like, we got a lot. I, there's a lot of things I want to ask you. But first, um, how is it that you came to, to be involved in, in our, uh, one, our California chapter, but two, just like what was, as I asked when we had Luke from Nebraska last time, what, what is the motivation to do what you're doing right now in the California chapter of our uh, podcast cult thing? Sure. Uh, well, first off, thanks for letting me come on and represent what we're doing and talk about it. Uh, and if I yeah. talk and ramble too much, just tell me to shut up because I'm very excited about it. And I think I represent the excitement and enthusiasm amongst all the chapter leaders. Um, it's pretty yeah. cool and exciting what we're doing. So for myself, well, listen, I, Nuri, be calm. You're on a podcast. You can talk for hours, and I don't think anybody minds. So all right. Let's go. So to answer your question, I'm a new hunter. I, at this stage of my life, I've been learning, listening to podcasts, reading, getting acclimated to this entire culture. Um, I come from a completely, a background where I am not prepared to go out and hunt. Um, so this is something that I've been building towards, and I really want to learn how to hunt personally. And I've been listening to your podcast for a long time. And when this opportunity or this whole initiative started to take some, uh, you know, started to take off in in a grassroots way, I just thought I should raise my hand because I want to, one, participate in what's going on with with connecting mentors and and, and mentees. But I also felt that just building a community was really important. It's something that I personally don't have. Um, I don't have many friends or any really that hunt. And I thought if we can create a community that that would be valuable to everybody. And if we create that community, what could that become in terms of beyond just teaching people how to hunt, but what could we do to educate other people who may not appreciate hunters as much? And how do we get them to appreciate what I've learned along this journey? And that's really my personal motivation of wanting to do this because I want to share what I've learned with everyone else, whether or not they want to hunt or just understand it. I want to educate as many people as possible. Yeah, I mean that sounds a lot 
a lot like where I came from when I started this podcast. You know, it's like you you want to share what you've learned. You understand that there are so many perspectives coming in to the hunting space and within and without, of course. Um, and it's been great. I mean, what you guys, what you have done in such a short time, number from raising your hand on, I will commend you as being probably you know the most thoughtful and leadership oriented one of our chapter leaders. And so, uh, kudos to that. I've, it's been fun to see you one um, come together with a bunch of people from across this country that have amazingly different backgrounds, you know, to, to, to see you guys interacting in the way that we have thus far has been, uh, is I would, there's no other word than, than joyous for me to see, um, as kind of the realization of some things I've had in my mind for a long time. So, uh, first, thank you for that. Um, and I want to get an update on, on how it's going in, on your chapter page on Facebook, but then just, you know, I know you're prepared to update us on, on everything that's going on, but let's start with California. Sure. Um, and by the way, I appreciate your comments around, you know, just my voice and what's been going on. I actually want to say one thing before I get started around that, because that's probably yeah. the biggest takeaway. What you've been trying to do in this mission of educating people, articulating what is it that you find valuable and these ethics that you believe in and these, you know, these values that you believe in, that for me has been the excitement of everybody involved wanting to share that and then also accepting someone like me is incredibly powerful. The fact that we, this is a, these are viewpoints that unite all of us despite our backgrounds and diverse, you know, political perspectives, cultural perspectives. We've all come into this and it's almost like this uh, community of people that immediately have a bond and love each other. And I think that's what you're reflecting is that excitement that everyone has, has felt. So I just want to say thank you for giving us the opportunity because it's yeah. been empowering to all of us to see what we can do. And I think that that's building a lot of momentum around this whole initiative. Yeah, I've said that a few times to you guys. We've dealt, we've we've gathered like love you guys, and I'm, I like I kind of mean that, man. But just in a in a way that I don't know you, but conceptually, I love you guys. <laughs> um, and and I think that's it's it's because of what you just said. And one thing that I would reflect on from from that is when when people can come together around complex issues that are hard to figure out, it is generally the antithesis of what we see in our culture right now. People are being divided by complex issues. We're chopping those issues up and using them to, to cudgel each other um, and to divide. And when we can all come together, be like, yeah, we appreciate these complex ideas. We may not agree, but boy, let's go. Let's see what we can figure out. You know, that to me is 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 this uh, beautiful a thing as we can get to. So point to be made. Completely agree. And I think to that point, as we, as we give you the update around what's going on nationally with our our regional chapters, I think that the, another key point is we have, let me look at my numbers here. I took some notes here. 35 active regional chapters, 36, including Nevada. This includes Australia, Canada, a military chapter, and you know a couple of regions that have been multi-states combined. Um, I think one of the incredible things of that enrollment, just in such a short period of time, it does speak to the fact that hunters and people who are interested in this are everywhere. And it's not a political you know, issue. It's not a partisan issue. People who have the values and the, the interest in the ethics that we're talking about are everywhere. And again, I think that speaks to the fact of what this can become in terms of a uniting issue and overcoming some of the division that we see in our society today. I, I mean, personally, that's part of what has motivated me to, to join this because I want to share that, just like you said. 
Yeah, that's great, man. Um, how many total? Did you get the number of total people we have in all those? Yeah, on uh, those thirty-six. So let me give you the total. So our totals right now, as of uh, let's see, yesterday. So or uh, yeah, yesterday afternoon, we have. Um, I'm sorry. Let me get the numbers. A little over twenty-five hundred total members across the states. So again, that's thirty-five chapters uh, that are active with sites today. Uh, the top 10 regional chapters have account for about 71% of total membership. That's seven regions that have over 100 members apiece. A number of regions have 50 to 100 members and a number of other remaining regions have, you know, uh, a, a variety depending on just when they got started and how active they've been to date. Um, with regards to the top 10 states, uh, California is leading the way with 650. I think it's actually 660 as of this morning. Um, wow. That's followed by Arizona and our admin leader, Mark Dill, and they have 200. Montana, admin leader, Lewis Johnson with 192. And Colorado, uh, led by Ryan Zapita and Riley Nelson with 146. And I'll just finish the other top two with uh, over 100. Uh, Washington State, led by Chris Stalker, has 114. Australia, led by Zach Slattery, has 113. And That's Zach, not fair. And Zach is just an amazing guy. I mean, uh, I think... Zach's awesome. I think we've named him the uh, Three-Eyed Raven or the Thunder from Down Under, depending on which nickname you want to pick. <laughs> I don't... I'm not, I'm not going to go Thunder from Down Under. Uh, that's been taken. I just say, it's not fair, Zach, that you have an entire continent. I just don't, you know... Come on, you should have thousands by now. Um, but it all, now, I will say this: this as a, as a, a little uh, interstitial to your to your numbers rundown. Phil, you have been found on Facebook. So <laughs> your your account has been discovered. And I mean, outed. I I didn't make it very difficult to find me. <laughs> here's here's uh, my name, and here's what my profile picture is. And I have gotten hundreds of friend requests. I yeah. haven't approved a single one of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have been outed. Uh, AB Rich, shout out to AB Rich. He was the first one to out you. Uh, it's your your account, Phil TE, with that beautiful photo of the mountains at the end of the road. <laughs> I think I Googled mountain. <laughs> <laughs> so you've been outed. Your, your, your burner account is now public, uh, even though you said it in public last, last week. But they found you. And yeah. you're now you're gonna have to do something. Join one of the chapters, uh, and maybe all the chapters. You're gonna have to do something. It's time to step up. Nuri's over here. He's running a biotech company in his free time. You know, and uh, <laughs> what do you got going on? Nothing. You're just editing podcasts. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, get it together. Okay, we'd like to see some performance out of you, Phil. Okay, uh, are pull, you gonna I'll, join I'll, the Montana? I'll pull are my weight. Yeah, I'm, we're sure. not gonna let we're not letting you into the leader page because you've not yet earned that. You've got to go out there <laughs> okay. and get. You've got to go out there and get and, you know get involved on the state and regional level, please. How about you guys keep talking? I'll I'll do it live on the podcast. I will join the Montana chapter. Oh my gosh, of the Hunting Collective. We've done it. We finally got Phil. His hunter safety course took six months. It only took him two weeks to join a chapter of the Hunting Collective. That's fantastic. Welcome, is, Phil. We did. Welcome, Philly. You've oh, done thank it. You. Soon you'll be a new hunter, and then uh, all will have been solved. All the world's new hunter problems will have been solved. Um, Nuri, you've got a bunch of you've been posting, and I've been and reading them all. A bunch of really cool stories, not only from your page and your chapter in California, 
but from across uh, from across the country. But I, I I would I would love for you to go into a couple of stories that you've had well, of new hunters, and, and we had one particularly disabled hunter who's just out there kicking ass. Like, give us a few few th- folks you'd like to highlight from from across that two thousand uh, person number. Absolutely. And I got to say, before I do that, sorry, I forgot. I wanted to call out my co- co-leader in California, Jordan Rigsby. So Jordan and I tag team and we lead that chapter. The way that I would describe that is Jordan is the QB of this effort and I'm the loud cheerleader on the bench that's looking to get in the game. So I do write a lot and I make a lot of noise, but I wanted to acknowledge Jordan and everything that he's done to really help recruit the numbers in California. And I'd also want to give a shout out to his his friend, Brad Gillespie, Gillespie, who's part of our uh, our chapter, and the Gillespie fan, uh, or clan, sorry, of Alan, Brittany, and Brad have each recruited hundreds of members. So I just wow. wanted to give a shout out to some key people who have been uh, really influential in just getting this off the ground, especially Jordan, uh, my, my co-chapter leader. Um, That's awesome. And, and, and you guys didn't know each other before this, right? No, we, we met. I, I didn't know a single person involved in this until this started. And like I said, we've had so many, you know, earlier, we have had many happy hours together. And it feels like I've got new friends in every state and friends that are willing to show me how to hunt and, you know, just want to spend time together. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. I just said selfishly, now I have a place to hunt in all, most, most of the states in the nation. And so, you know, you got to get something out of a cult. And uh, I'll provide the Kool-Aid. Tell us about some cool people, man. All right. So let's start. I mean, just a couple of really great initiatives that have been going on and some successes. So I want to first give a shout out to all the other regions who have been putting together, you know, activities and making connections. So, you know, within California, I'll I'll go into a couple of, of, of really cool examples of successes but I also want to give a shout out to all the other states that have been leading things like cleanup days, uh, inaugural meet and greets. Uh, Aaron Shaw in Oklahoma had a, a crawfish boil to get everyone together. Many states have organized archery you know, um, sessions together. Um, and a number of states have also started to connect mentors with mentees, either through the admins helping out or just natural connections that have been made. So I want to call out those states like Washington, Colorado, North Dakota, Blue Ridge, our own Eric Hall. Um, a lot of good mentorship going on, uh, even in the early days of this program. That's awesome, man. I, I uh, if I could be like, if you guys are having get together, just try to zoom me in. I'd like to at least like pop in to one or two of them if I can. My wife might get mad eventually, but oh. uh, <laughs> I'd love to. I'd love to virtually crawfish boil. It's almost like, uh, well, I, yeah, I, I think that would be great if we could do that. And also, uh, you may uh, regret <laughs> asking for that because <laughs> the number of invites you're going to be getting, I think, will be uh, maybe too much to handle. Phil, Phil will take any trickle down that I ever, if I can't get there, Phil can, Phil can be there, right, Phil? I mean, if I get to eat some crawfish, then hell yeah. Yeah, we got to see what our uh, travel budget is for Phil, but we we could probably just fly Phil to pretty much every event, and he'll come. <laughs> he can only be there for ten minutes because he's going to be really busy. But uh, ten minutes of Phil is a good is is good yeah, enough. Yeah, Cal. This is, it reminds me of something Cal brings up. This is a sneak peek for next week's Meat Eater podcast. They were talking about how Cal sometimes gets a lot of speaking engagements when it's stuff that Steve can't do. They're like, oh, we'll send Cal. <laughs> uh that'll be like me i'll be the i'm i'll be the cal of this podcast ben ben can't show up 
We'll just send. We'll send just Phil. Kind of, yeah, yeah. And we, we already did. You already tried to grow a mustache, and uh, I'd like to see you do it again. Can you start growing no a mustache one wants now? To see that again? What's that? Can you start start growing one now and then shave it off when you kill a turkey? No, I grew I grew one mustache for you already, Ben. That was that's all all you're gonna get from me. I'm sorry. Oh, skimpy. I miss you. Uh, that was a good that was a good couple of months. And that's back when we saw each other almost every day, and I could really track the progress of Skimpy. <laughs> yep. uh, ben, no, you want to no, see Skimpy? You gotta you gotta see my mustache. You talked about a Fu Man <laughs> hey. earlier. That's a uh, full full on right here. <laughs> well, I mean, we we uh, you know what I should I gotta I gotta promote the Bear Grease podcast. This just all reminds me of that. But I'm gonna read you guys a really good uh, a Bear Grease podcast with Clay Newcomb review in a second, but. We got to get, you got to tell us about, uh, I think we probably have time for one story from you. All um, right, here we go. Here we go. So let me just give a couple of uh, highlights from our group. Uh, you mentioned uh, a disabled hunter in our group. So I want to call out Eric Baker. So Eric is an inspiration to all. He's the ultimate no barrier is too great story. Uh, just briefly, Eric's a lifelong passionate outdoorsman. He's now disabled to various conditions that, that have afflicted him. He's wheelchair bound. But Eric has been one of the most inspirational and generous mentors on our site. He's offered his time, education, and tips on the site and in person to various people. He's already established a mentee education day this coming Saturday with a young new mentor in the area. And he's shown everybody what's possible. So he has, he's wheelchair bound. And in the three weeks that we've had this site up, he's already posted a successful hunt for pheasant, turkey, and uh, you know other accomplishments that he's he's had mentoring his grandkids, um, and he's just an incredible inspiration to anybody who thinks that there's any reason that you can't get into the woods and learn how to hunt. Eric is, I think, someone that inspires all of us to say, you know, there's no barrier too great, and there's nothing that should stop you from enjoying time outside. Um, Eric also has. You know, I think I want to raise an issue related to his his situation, which is I don't think we talk about disability in hunting. I, I, at least that's not something that I've heard of or have you know put on my radar screen. And Eric, you know, I think is somebody who is really trying to make that an, uh, an issue that is more um, that's something that that people are more aware of. And he has a GoFundMe account to try to raise money for his own. Uh, there are four by four all-terrain adaptability vehicles for folks who are disabled to help them get around outside in the outdoors. And so this is basically like a four by four type of uh, vehicle that can help disabled people. And he has a GoFundMe account. So I, I encourage for people who want to support this kind of uh, this community to, you know, to support people like Eric, both in terms of, you know, anything that you can do on, you know, his, his GoFundMe to, to raise money for this all-terrain vehicle but also, I think that we should do that because he represents, I think, the best of mentorship and what we want to get out of this community. Um, and yeah. I would like to raise awareness around disability because it's not something that, that our California Wildlife Department has a program around. And it's something that Eric and others, I think, are trying to make you know, in an effort to, to get some attention around. Yeah, that's um, extremely important. And I will uh, pledge right now, I'll, I'll get some information from you, maybe a picture, whatever Eric wants to share and get that link. And I'll post that up on my social media so people can can go and find that GoFundMe page and, and just go find Eric. And uh, you know, imagine that people 
Um, anyone would like a place to go where there's a bunch of people who appreciate what they do and appreciate their drive for life and can can hold them up as a role model. So if, if what we're up to, Nuri, can provide that for anybody, especially Eric. Um, we look to multiply that idea and that feeling as much as we can in the coming months, years, however long this goes. Absolutely. And I appreciate that. I really do appreciate that. One thing I will say is that, no, I lost my train of thought. You'll have to cut this out, Phil, or maybe just leave it in. You're not even listening, are you? <laughs> I'm petting a cat, but I'm listening. What are you? Are you petting Kevin or Meatloaf? I bet it's, it's Meatloaf. It's That's Kevin. Kevin! Kevin! <laughs> you son of a bitch. <laughs> All right. I know I, I ramble a lot. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you one more case example. Keep going. Yeah, go. We had a successful mentorship hunt this past weekend. So a, a relatively new hunter, Jen Len, lives in the Bay Area. Joined the, the, the chapter about a week ago, um, immediately asked for mentorship help because she's a somewhat experienced duck hunter, but wants to you know, get out there and go after other game. Uh, I saw people respond to her and say that you know, they were going to private message or DM her. Uh, she also, you know, not completely organized by our site, but uh, she had a mentor who has helped her in the past, a woman by the name of Melinda Dodds. And both of these two have an incredible story. So one... Melinda is a professional guide. Uh, this is a career change for her. So she got into hunting after a life in corporate America and over the last four years has established herself as a guide. And one of her key initiatives is really taking a new hunter and mentoring them for free, not with guide, guided services. In the past, she's helped Janet uh, with other game and uh, they were able to go out and get into the turkey woods and get Jen her first gobbler this past weekend. Um, and... Jen has become an incredibly active member, both in terms of representing what, you know, not being afraid as a mentee to go ask for help on our board, but also just an incredible encouraging voice to other people uh, that are looking for that kind of support. And I would say that Melinda also represents, I think, the best of the, the you know, the professional guided community, because we have a number of guides like I'll call out Bryson Welsh and Billy Rourke. These are guides who have a full time job but have offered time, education, and uh, you know, their services in non-paid you know, capacities as a mentor as well. And these are the kind of folks that are showing up on our board and encouraging all of us, like myself and others that haven't hunted, uh, you know, how to get started, giving us encouragement, giving us advice, and also getting out in the field and taking people out there. So I just wanted to highlight Jen and Melinda because it's pretty kick-ass that these girls have gone out there, they've, they've they've established this relationship between a mentor and mentee and are really trying to take that and bring that to the rest of the community, which is really the kind of culture and the, uh, you know, the nature of the dialogue that's been going on on our site. So that's, you know, I think if we can build on that kind of experience, that's the kind of thing that we are, you know, really excited to, to be able to offer everybody within our group. Yeah. I mean, you know, and that, it just pushes this, this, these kind of stories should push all of us. Like, how can we, how can we do better? Even though we've gathered, on these pages, if you're not, if you've listened to this podcast and you've never emailed or interacted with me or anyone else, and you don't want to, you don't have to. But boy, if 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 ever there was a chance to go and get involved in something that can really help you on a personal level, whether you're mentoring or you're need in need of mentoring, I I've like I've said before on this show, I get nothing. There's there's nothing more satisfying than mentoring somebody and showing them what you what you know and and, and introducing them into your passion. There's nothing better, man, and to see 
to see you know you Nuri like and and Jordan leading a group of people that are are then forming their own you know individual missions within that is is exactly the point of of what we're up to so I couldn't be more proud to to be a part of that Ben I mean really thank you for giving us and everybody that's had the benefit of being part of these communities to uh, connect honestly it, it I think that you know maybe my answer earlier was it could have been much more simple. The, the value of this is connection, the connection yeah. of the community and everything that we all share as values. And that's, I think what we want to spread to the world. Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, well, very well put, well-spoken as always. And I appreciate having you around. Um, we're going to do a chapter leader happy hour here, not for long from now. Hopefully I see you there as well. Um, but again, I can't say anymore, but that I'm proud to be a part of this and, and thank you to everybody that's joined. And if you haven't joined, uh, you can go and easily Google. Uh, it'll be THC and then the state or region that you're looking for. And if and of course, as many of you have done, send me a message if you can't find it or you're having trouble uh, getting to where you need to be in terms of the state or region that you're in. Um, happy to drop a link in your inbox or your DMs or something if you're confused or you can't find and you want to get in there and connect with folks like Nuri. This is your chance to do it. And now we got to get to, Phil, uh, the return of dr robert c jones you ready for this yes i am let's do it i have actually <laughs> no wait a minute let's do it again are you ready for this phil yeah! you're yawning and just <laughs> taking what do you want me this. to say ben what what reaction would you like me to have You're i would director. like you to have that tone i'm right an there. actor just have tell that me tone. what to do Woo! You just heard inspiring Nuri's inspiring the world over here, and you're just like petting a cat, you know? Like, what the hell's wrong with you? Like, get you. I can't wait to get you in the turkey woods. I want to make you. I'm gonna. You know what they uh, guides used to tell you? They would would make people go on a disciplinary hike when a, a client was acting up. They would just take him for a walk all day and never even actually look for deer. Um, I'm gonna have to take you in a couple of those. Okay? Listen, I I I know my lane. Nuri's out here doing important, inspiring work. Uh. And I, I'm petting, you know, you couldn't have made me look worse by saying he's petting a cat, <laughs> but I was, I was petting a cat while Nuri was <laughs> That's fine. You look, you look great, man. Cats don't pet themselves. Well, I guess they kind of do. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, you know, no, you're taking care of your, you're being an animal rights kind of guy. Uh, exactly. Phil, yeah. the animal rights uh, representative for the THC podcast. That's right. Thank you. We love you, Phil. Um, so what I asked Robert C. Jones, I, I talked to him like a week ago and I said, listen, man, we've been talking about this idea of the North American model of wildlife conservation and how to either fuse this animal rights ideology into it or at least create a parallel universe where there is a model that that at least takes into account animal rights and the way that they think about wildlife. So I've asked him to do that. I gave him a, a couple of days to prepare, and we will see what he can do right now. Enjoy Dr. Robert C. Jones for the third time. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. 
They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? You need a brake light fixed? You need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild. But searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day into today. Because trust me, there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Robert, how are you, sir? Ben O'Brien, it's it's so good to connect with you once again. Oh man, it is good to to see you. And uh, you're drinking a seltzer water. I am going with a white claw because it okay. is Friday. <laughs> That's nice. And uh, <laughs> this this is the mood that I'm in. Um, right. How are you, sir? How are you? I'm doing well. I can't complain. Uh, you know, it's. I mean. Aside from that, the fact that there's a global pandemic, at least it's looking like it's coming to an end. But other than that, yeah. uh, it's the yeah. middle of the semester. My students are getting antsy for May to come. So I think I'm getting antsy for May to come. So yes, Can't yes, yeah, same here, same here. I think in in, in our part of the world, the, the, every time the sun shines, people just run outside. They don't nice. know what they're doing out there, but <laughs> they're out there. A lot of people, yeah. A lot of people, a uh, lot more hunters out there, a lot more hikers and bikers and people that are wanting to spend time outside, which I enjoy all the way yeah. around. People have been going stir crazy, so I, I get yeah, it. Damn. I get it. Damn right. Damn right. Well, I told you, there's a lot of things we could talk about, but I told you that uh, we've had, since we, we've last talked to you, I think we talked to you, what, over the summer there in the middle of the lockdown or, or yeah, some, yeah. at some was, point. Yeah, right it was about it. yeah, it was the last summer, yeah. Yeah. Since then, we've had some other uh, conversations with animal rights activists, uh, particularly a fellow named Paul Bashir, mm-hmm. who uh, is the head of this pl- uh, thing called Anonymous for the Voiceless Animal Rights Activist. And it was it was a, a contentious conversation, but also at the end, I think we both appreciated each other much, much mm-hmm. more than we did than we did going in. He came into it quite combative. 
Um, but at the end, we were we both pretty much felt pretty good about each other. Um, we didn't walk away hand in hand, but we we gained mm-hmm. some respect there. Um, oh, good. Which, which I was happy about. But since since we got into that idea with him, we got since we got into that conversation with him, I should say, there's this been an idea floating around in my head, and I mentioned on the podcast a bunch that we have this North American model of wildlife conservation. I talk about it all the time because it's a model so we can refer to it specifically, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's something that we've explicitly said that manages the way wildlife functions within the current system uh, of game laws and the current system of, of everything, really, from um, economics to, to ecology. So I wanted to just – I've been saying I, I wonder if we can either do one of two things, achieve one or two things. One – take animal ethics and animal rights and bake it into the current model and somehow make that work, you know, mm-hmm. as an expression of your, uh, you know, what you and I have been doing for almost a couple of years now is trying to get, take one step closer to each other after we've, we kind of started uh, far away right? <laughs> and uh, doing that. And then also is there in your mind, either a parallel system that could work with animal rights or something that you could envision creating that could, you know, either replace or somehow um, coexist with our current model. Uh, and so, yeah, that's where that has in that. It's been a, it's been a long exploration of years and years trying to get to a point where like, what can we do tangibly to discuss this in real ways? And so I wondered if, if you would take part in that. I don't have any answers myself, but I figured if there's anybody I was going to spend an hour trying to figure it out with, it would be you. Well, thanks, Ben. I appreciate that. Uh, now, when you said you want you want to talk about real real world things we can do, I think it may have slipped your mind that I'm a philosopher by trade. So, <laughs> Yeah, I'm an so, amateur philosopher. <laughs> so we philosophers are naturally out of the real world. And so everything's at the level of theory. So no, but, hey, but as, you know, as you know, I, I, I consider myself an, an activist as well. Um, Absolutely. I think, uh, well, one thing I was wondering, and it, you could help me too, is if you can give me what you see as a kind of brief summary of what the U.S. Um, kind of management, the, an overview of what you think the main tenants are, the policies are, sure, that, sure, that are central to yeah, it. And, and I think, um, and we've had the you know kind of it's a long history of the North America model, but it was it was really codified by a fellow named Dr. Valerius Geist, who we had on the show, and he's explained this entire history, and then and brought to bear by Shane Mahoney, who's been on the show many, many times and is coming on with us next week. Um, he brought it to the masses. He's an incredible orator. And so really what those guys did was take a bunch of ideas that started at the turn of the century and really what we could call like a revolution um, – of environmentalism mixed with, you know, conservation that happened at the turn of the century with Teddy Roosevelt, um, Gifford Pinchot, uh, John Muir, you know, it all kind of turned at the, at the turn of the century. And so there was a, mil- a lot of legislation that happened in those 80 years. It just so happened that Dr. Valerius Geis said, we have a model. He was once challenged that there was no model for wildlife conservation in America and he said, we have a model. And, and by God, he went, sat down and wrote the thing. Mm. And here we are. They actually just put a book out last year called The North American Model of Conservation. It's on my shelf. I'm looking at it. Um, and so I guess that's this, this model 
was a way um, to take the things that began in the 1860s where, where sportsmen and advocates for, for conservation organized and they're just saying, we want to preserve wildlife, preserve wilderness areas. We want to bring back from the brink many of these wildlife populations that us humans real fucked up real bad over the, mm-hmm. the prior one since we landed and landed here. And so that's, I guess that's the genesis of where this came from. And then again, somebody had to actually put it into words at some point. Um, and this goes all the way back to, to Boone and Crockett. So the, the thing has, I should probably pull it up so I don't get them wrong. The thing has uh, seven tenants mm-hmm. and, and those seven tenants are, are meant to really elaborate on and then kind of build a construct around how we manage manage wildlife, how we value wildlife, the purposes for which we would kill an animal, and then how our system is set up to allow science to to be a tool to discharge our wildlife policy. And again, one of the main tenets is that wildlife is held in public trust, right, by the states. Um, no one owns it. If there's a deer on your uh, on your land, you don't own that deer. That deer is is a public trust. And it is managed in kind by the states, um, given wildlife biology and policy. Um, is that pretty good for a, a foundational piece of the puzzle? Oop, I lost you. I'm looking at, sorry. I got, yeah, that's good. Thanks. And I'm looking at the core tenants. I was looking at them as, yeah. you, as you spoke with them. And so yeah, so this, I just pulled it up myself. So there's yeah. seven of them. I always always get them out of order or miss them. But wildlife is a public trust, which I just which I basically just described, and that has its origins in um, really English common law. Mm-hmm. You know that that really said wildlife was owned by the ruling class, the aristocracy, right? Um, which which in some cases by by nature privatized said wildlife. Um. And now we're going to say, you know, wildlife is held in trust for the public and it's going to be managed in within that trust by the state and federal governments mm. um, who we pay with our tax dollars and, and right. with our license fees and everything else. Um, and so that that's I would say that's the most important one gotcha. for this model, because what yeah. it really does is it grounds the other ones. Um, and if anybody wants to go back, go back, we we did with Shane Mahoney a full rundown of all seven of these. And he gave. Mm. He he gave them in like packages. Like these, this is a package, and here's a package, and here's one. They all kind of interplay, but they they make sense in this way, right? Um, so you want to go, you want to go one by one, or or uh, go all all the way through? Well, I mean, we can go one by one. I think what I what comes to mind for me is to just kind of step back and yeah. think about maybe and a little bit of a, a summary or an overview of the way that. Uh, wildlife management is conceptualized in like the animal rights community. Um, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe, you know, people who aren't familiar with it. I think the first thing that comes to mind for me as, you know, when I teach environmental ethics, which I do teach, the first thing I want to point out, and again, you know, I'm a philosopher, so we think we kind of like try to do these conceptual analyses and stuff. The, the first thing to recognize is the notion of wilderness, right? The, our, the, 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 the concept of wilderness that we in, say, let's say we in the West or let's say we in the United States have, it's a certain way, you could say it's a, it's a construct, but it's a way of thinking about the world that 
it's not universal, right? I mean, um, the the distinction if a lot of indigenous uh, cultures indigenous to the United States, at least through the histories that we understand, the notion that there's like a wilderness out there is is a weird idea, right? So, hmm. so first of all, and of course this comes from Europe and stuff, but so so the first thing I just want to lay on the table is that for many environmental ethicists, the first recognition is that the very concept of wilderness is a, is a construct. So, mm-hmm. so it's not like we have humans and then we have the separation. And, that's, and that divide between humans and nature and wilderness, that lies at, a, at the heart of a lot of the differences between animal rights people and say, um, you know, conservationists. So, so sure. now I'm, I'm not here to have a debate about whether or not wilderness is a construct. It's just, I think it's an interesting thing because when I first, years ago, when I first read about it, it certainly struck me as weird. Like, oh yeah, I just assumed that there's this thing out there and it's the wilderness and it's separate (laughs) from me. Um, And the other thing that's interesting too is if, and I'm sure, you know, the history of the notion or the history of the concept of wilderness, at least in, in West, in the West, in Europe, it's gone through different phases, right? I mean, the, the model that we have today, which is sometimes referred to as kind of the romantic model, which is that, you know, this kind of Thoreau, this, this kind of, uh, this model of like, the innocence and purity of the wilderness, and Ralph Waldo Emerson, and going back to mm-hmm. Rousseau in philosophy, that there's something good about nature, there's something pure, uncorrupted about nature. That's a recent phenomenon in the West as well, right? I mean, if you go back to the original say, say, let's just say the, um, like the Mayflower land in 1620, that view of wilderness was a kind of like hostile, unholy place filled with, you know, uh, unholy, uh, uncivilized, right, people. So, and then you have different models as, as, as they, they, they evolve over the years. But what I'm just trying to point out is that both the notion of wilderness and the model that we have of wilderness as this kind of pristine, pure thing to preserve mm. or to conserve, these are these are historical phenomena. These aren't they're not universally found all over the world by in, in all different cultures. So I, I think it's important for us first to recognize that we're operating under a construction of the way that we sort of carve out wilderness in our culture. And, you know, yeah. for good or for bad, I'm not even making a judgment. I'm, I'm merely trying to make the point that as, as is whenever we're studying any topic, it's a good idea to see it in perspective and say, okay, I see what we're, we're talking about. You know, mm. there's the animals are out there and the trees are out there and, and that's, and it's pristine and all of that are, all of those ways are ways that we have ad- adopted, at least in the West. Um, now I might be saying something totally obvious to everyone who's listening and if so i apologize but but, but i i think <laughs> no, that no. the history on this is is interesting to me um yeah yeah i think uh i, I i'm i'm like you i i really like to think of things in the theoretical and i think it's it gets us because there are and we can talk about them in a little bit but there are like forest service federal government wilderness classifications like we're going to treat this chunk of ground right, differently right. than this chunk of ground but that's not what you're talking about you're you're more talking about this idea of how we see 
these quote unquote wild places, you know, like what do we, what's the value system around them? And, and what do we do? What do we do in them? Um, Cause there's a lot of people in the hunting space that have, have kind of evolved through years to really want to protect wilderness, to not want uh, motorized vehicles there, to not right. want motorized boats there, to want to keep these places um, as pristine as they can. And there's a, a, a separate group within hunting that sees that as um, like elitist that sees that as, well, you know, if I, if I can, why can't I bring my ATV? There? Mm-hmm. Um, you're right. going to tell me to right. stay, you're going to tell me to stay out and you can stay in. Isn't that the same kind of aristocracy that we yes. built just a cultural aristocracy and not a, you know, and, and not an actual class based aristocracy, or maybe it is that even that. So there, you know, I, we probably speak in different languages here, but I, but I think at its core, we even in the hunting space have this idea of what is wilderness, how do we protect it, and yeah. what do we do, and and can we can we manage to have this much wilderness in a world where we just consume, 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 consume? Right. Um, right. Not yeah. only not only the animals, but the environment in which they sure. live. Sure. Well, oh. the, the obvious answer to that question is no, we can't. But <laughs> but. But That's true. one, so one, one other thing that comes to mind for me, and you mentioned, you know, uh, early 20th century, you know, Pinchot and Muir. And I think there's an interesting distinction that you, you spoke in passing of conservation and then you spoke about preservation. And, sure. you know, historically, if you think about Pinchot versus John Muir, those are two different ways to think about the environment. And it seems to me that, and again, please correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that the issues of wildlife management assume a conservationist kind of model. In other words, the model that there exists this thing out there and it's nature and it's natural and it's good and we use science to manage it. And, mm-hmm. but, but ultimately the public lands and the public resources are there to serve us, they're, they're, they're in a sense, a kind of resource to be managed. And that is classic Pinchot. And on the other hand, someone like John Muir, who was associated with a kind of preservationist view, is that our job is just to preserve and let this thing be as beautiful as it is. It's, it's a kind of reverence, you know, a kind of, you can see it as, as the role that humans play is to is to experience transcendence, but it's not for us. It's not a resource, right? So I think that's important when thinking about the animal rights thing that we were talking about when you mentioned the beginning, and that is the animal rights view is much more of a preservationist view in the sense that it kind of says animals, these sentient, you know, complex, socially really complex beings um, they're not ours to manage because they're not resources. They're beings, right? Now, now you might step back and go like, well, look, humans are resources. I mean, at my <laughs> job, there's a thing called human resources, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, and so, yeah. uh, but of course, that, that sort of commodifying of humans is something that, you know, I'm sure you would agree. Like we, you and I are on, you and I, the, a lot of places where you and I overlap are in looking at sort of modernity as encroaching on what's good, right? I mean, you and I, as you've mentioned before in our conversations, we may have we may have gone in 
stepped in different directions, but we both we both have these kinds of values that we share. And, you know, the whole idea that humans are commodities or humans are resources, that takes us away from the important values. And so I think what I'm getting at is the sort of preservationist model dovetails nicely with the animal rights model in that the animal rights people are, are going to say, look, the whole idea that nature is to be managed as 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 something for the good of human beings that's just totally anthropocentric it's totally it's 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 a wrong-headed misguided way to think about wilderness and nature and what we're supposed to be doing is at least on the animal rights front what what we're supposed to be doing is we're supposed to be respecting animals as autonomous sentient beings and allowing them to live the lives that and 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 exist in the kinds of ecosystems that they exist in and so mm-hmm. perhaps what we can do is 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 to facilitate animals having as much autonomy and and this kind of stuff as possible but not to interfere with it so so I think at the bottom line, when we think about wildlife management, I think it's important to see that there's, there is a radical departure from the idea of wild, the, the very concept of wildlife management to a lot of animal rights people. What they want to say is, it's just, it's just the wrong way to even look at the situation. You're, you're going yeah. into it, you're front loading it by saying there's a, there are these animals and they need to be managed. And that, that's where, so even before we jump into, you know, well, is there a way to integrate an animal rights view into a, a, like a progressive or, or a, a flourishing wildlife management view, it's important to, to stake out the distinctions and say, mm-hmm. um, and say uh, the, the very view that, that grounds wildlife management is, needs to be questioned, at least from the animal rights yeah. perspective. Yeah, no, I, I think what you just outlined there was is is really at the core of what has conflicted me over the years with with my own hunting. You know, and the commodity like I commodity, I look at animals as commodities sometimes. <laughs> you know, I say I, I was we talked about this show last week that if I can kill ten turkeys, then I can feed my family white meat from my own hand for the most in the entire year, right? So I look at it as like ten. To your point, I don't like. I'm going to go kill ten sentient beings. I look right, at it right. as sure. I I look at it as I can go get ten turkeys, but I'm comfortable with one the value system that has created inside of me. Right? I, I don't feel, and the people around me don't feel as if. Um, and you and I were talking before the show a little bit about our our little uh, chapters and the chapter leaders. And as you've always asked me, you said like, "Are you like a unicorn?" <laughs> like, I think you're thoughtful. (laughs) Are you like the only one? (laughs) Um, Are these ideas like kind of unique to you? Um, And I guess it's starting to become clearer that not only are they not unique to me, I think they're compelling to people that never heard them before. And I think what you just said is also compelling to people that have never heard them before. But to take a few steps back, I've, I've always looked at Somebody asked me, like, what is hunting from a conservation level? How do those two things go together? Because there is a phrase in hunting that says hunting is conservation. And I said, well, that's not right. Hunting is hunting mm. and conservation is conservation. And, and to your point, preservation is preservation. All of those things kind of sit next to each other, but they're not all the same thing. Um, foundationally, they're all pretty damn different, actually. 
Um, but for me, I always say like hunting is a sustainable use of a natural resource. Now me saying that obviously goes against what you just detailed there, which is that why is an animal a natural resource for you? You know? Um, and that's, I, I would imagine that's the core of the argument. Like if they're not a natural resource, um, what are they and how do we cohabitate with them and how do we manage those conflicts that come with that cohabitation? Um, and the other thing that I, I guess makes me comfortable with giving that statement to that, given that answer to that question is one, I've seen how treating animals as a natural resource has allowed people to value them in deeper ways than I ever thought possible. And then the North American model comes in when it's like, we're not just doing this haphazardly. We've looked at this, we've given seven tenants. They all kind of, they're not perfect, boy, they could always be modernized. Um, and, and our, our, our community is trying to do that as we speak but they at least allow guardrails for what has been really uh, a, a really productive uh hundred years for for wildlife that we say are game animals and so i look at it kind of in those stages and um i've asked myself the question that you just kind of posed there which is is the basis of what i do wrong like the commoditization the the natural resource thought about an animal because certainly when i interact with animals i don't when i'm in the face of an elk i don't like oh there goes the natural resource <laughs> i see the individual elk <laughs> you know right. i see it's i have to learn its behavior i have to learn how it interacts with other elk and where it lives and what it thinks and so in that sense i see it as an individual but in the sense of conservation i have to then pull back and maybe uh, you can convince me <laughs> of that I'm just trying to convince myself that that natural resource statement um, holds up in court. Maybe it doesn't hold up in court. And I've always wondered that um, as a as just a function of, of challenging my own worldview and challenging the dogma that I was presented when I stepped into the hunting space. Mm. You know? And well, that's where I sit right now yeah. after three years of talking about it. And as usual, Ben, you're very you're very thoughtful about this stuff. And I, I hope you're right that you are sort of emblematic of the way that hunters think because that's a you know that i mean look the the stereotypes and you know the stereotype of the animal rights person is you know the throwing blood on the person wearing a fur coat and the stereotype of the hunters shoot everything that moves kind of a thing <laughs> so it's nice to hear as i i say every time we have a conversation it's nice to, that you're so thoughtful and that's representative of maybe the way that hunters are are, are thinking um can i just can i just say before you I've evolved to hunters. I'm at the point right now where I think the ideas that we're talking about are compelling to everybody mm -hmm. that gets to listen to them. You yeah. know, I think it's it's some of these ideas have have brought hunters along that have traditionally thought different things or were fed different information and are now being exposed to it. But I think um, we just had a guy on the show before you came on. His name's Nuri Hong. Never hunted a day in his life. Lives in California. Is a biotech engineer in his free time. And came onto this podcast, listened to it as a non-hunter, and joined our chapter in California as now our chapter leader, and is is not only hunting himself, but but leading a community of people that have been doing it for years and years and years longer than him. And and in our space, that is like insane that that mm. happened. You know, yeah. he is a leader of hunters, but he's only a leader because he's embraced the ideas that we're talking about in right. their totality, at least at least the exploration. Well, one of the things that you said kind of jumped out at me, and that is, and I, from, from 
what we spoke about, what we're speaking about now, but also from our previous conversations. And that is, um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you, you did say that, um, you, you see hunting as, as, um, or, or, or management in this conservation in this way of, of, uh, sustainable has to be sustainable and it's sustaining natural resources it's sustainable can can you say that phrase again like what's what's conservation to you sustainable use of a natural resource so the idea that we can if we take some yeah we're gonna take some Mm -hmm. not but we're gonna but the overall health of the population will will be either maintained or forwarded you know like there's more deer today than ever and we yeah. can kill. We've killed a lot of them as hunters. So this idea that we can kill some and that's going to be a benefit to the whole, and this, and it also comes down to this idea that of how we view that activity, where we're, we're saying we're going to use this natural resource, but we're going to pay into the pot, right? We're going to buy a license. We're going to give an excise tax, right? Or you know, we're all we're going to have a construct which our which our model kind of outlines that allows us to use this natural resource in a sustainable way. But boy. Do we have a whole lot of principles and philosophies that that make that use um, sustainable, as the statement goes to, but also you know value based and and kind of sure. locked into locked into a, a process. Yeah, um, yeah. So one of the things that I was thinking when you were talking about that is that, um, so it seems that where you and another place that you and I we share values is that. The, the notion that um, nature, think wilderness, things that exist out there outside of cities and things like that, but even within cities in certain areas. But so we we don't we don't think that the proper attitude is that these things are are there to be used in any ways that I so desire. I mean, you and I've talked, mm-hmm. we've had conversations about uh, consumerism and problems mm-hmm. with like consumption, right? If you, if you don't have the clause of sustainability, then you're left with it. These are natural resources for us to use. So, so the sustainability aspect of, of your notion of, of conservation is it plays a key role, right? You, you can't just, that's when you and I've talked about problems we have with, you know, factory farming. <clears throat> One of the problems we have is, you know, it's destructive to the environment. It's yeah. totally disrespectful to, you know, animals. At least that's my view. So, um, what? But, but so, what I find interesting is a couple of things. One is, at 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 heart, and I might be wrong. I I think seeing nature as a resource. I think that that. I want to say it goes against it. It seems to me it puts intention. It's it puts your view in tension with your own view, which is that mm-hmm. I don't want to think. I don't. You and I, we don't think of nature as a resource. It's like it's 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 almost transcendent. It's almost there's a reverence about it, right? And so, so first of all, going back to our original part of our conversation, it seems like for for you, I'm seeing there might be some tension where you're like, mm-hmm. well, I have to think of it. And you talked about when you're, when you're in, encountering an individual animal that you're going to shoot. It's like, I have to think about this thing as a resource in the way, in the way that I can, so that I can fulfill my, yeah. my job. But, but I also have this other thing where I think, no, that's not a resource. Like 
if I take a million of them and put them in a factory farm, you're going to go, they're not resources, they're animals, right? <laughs> yeah. So yep, that's exactly. one that's thing. That's a great point. That's yeah, a so great that, point. That's something I find intention. But here's the other thing is, the other thing is the sustainability part, as I said, that seems to play a key role. It's like we can, as you mentioned, like we can, on this view, we can hunt deer as long as we're not removing so much, so many deer as to mess up the ecosystem, right? So mm-hmm. we want to have a balance. We want to have a kind of healthy stasis. And and this is the challenge I've, I've sort of raised to you in the in the past, and that is, if you don't have sustainability, then this model flies out the window. And what I want to sure. say is, there are seven and a half billion people on the planet. Your model is not sustainable. It's not. There's no way in hell you're going to get seven and a half billion people going out and shooting 10 turkey for their family. For the, it's, so, so it's sustainable. It's, it's maybe it's like locally sustainable. Maybe it's sustainable in certain pockets of the world. Um, but my point is in the same way, when, sometimes when I have, ar- not arguments, but discussions with people about veganism, they say, well, you can't do veganism. Ever. You know, you're going to have the Inuit who they eat blubber. You're going to make them eat tofu. Like, and what I want to say is, yeah, I agree. That's, that's, that's a really difficult, that's a challenge. Like I could go to Whole Foods in California and get tofu, but there are indigenous peoples who their hunting is a part of their lives and it's part of their sustainability. By the same token, the view that, that you're expressing it's just not sustainable at a world level. So you and I yeah. are weirdly in this, we both have our own conundrums that our views lead to that, you know, it's, 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 um, it's humbling. I think if you, yeah. maybe hopefully yeah. you agree with me. I do very much agree with that. Yeah. And I think you the tension you mentioned there. I'll take that. We'll try to take that initial point and then we'll go to, to kind of the sustainable part. But the tension I think is very well articulated by you because that tension is, is, I try to deal with it in two ways. And this might be the first time I've ever tried to articulate this in a way. So that's why I love having you on because you force me to articulate shit that I've, I've, I've just never really put a finer point on. I, I, practicality and emotionality. Is emotionality a word? It probably is. Uh, it's a I word to it me. I, I, it's a word to me too. If, not, if we agree on it, it, it's a word. <laughs> yeah. If, you, if you, <laughs> we agree on it, it's a word. Um, yeah. So th- those two aspects of hunting for me have always been a push-pull. Always. I've always said, I could pick up this book by Geist and Mahoney and read the North American Model of Wildlife Conservation and the pragmatist in me can see it clearly, right? I can see where it came from, why it was created, and then I can look at the result of it, which is is pretty inarguably more proliferation of these wildlife species that I care about. But then when I say I care, I've got to then take a step back and like, what do I care about? You know, do I care about a single deer or all the deer? And and I can't just say all the deer. I got to say both because I do care about single. I do see the characteristics they have that I admire. I have an admiration for these things that's so deep and so value-based that I'd be a fool to to reject your notion of sentience and a a fool to reject your notion of... Of, of, of pure rights when it comes to, to uh, how, autonomy, really. Um, and so that's always been, I've tried not to use the practical notion of conservation as a shield for the emotional notion of my relationship mm-hmm. with the animals. And 
because those two things exist in parallel for me, I understand the tension that uh, that is b- between the two things. And I think a lot of hunters would like to say and have said to me in the past, well, and 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 I there's a lot of parts on this where I do agree where it's like, well, these animal rights guys, it's all emotion. There's no fact, right? It's all emotion. There's no fact. They care about the animal, but they don't care about cohabitation. They care about the animal, but they don't care about management. Um, and I always, I say, yeah, I agree that a lot of the people, and that's why I love talking to you because you don't do this, but a lot of people we talk to do straight up call on the emotion only and not the practicality or the philosophy behind it. But those that can have those conversations all at once, I think we all kind of have the same confusion um, because we all, I mean, the way that we see animals in nature, as you mentioned, is kind of a construct of, of our own humanity. You know, that relationship mm-hmm. is constructed in our own psychology. And so I, I would admit, I guess the, to, to, to touch on that first point and, and recap all that, the practical, I, I see the practicality of, of the North American model and I appreciate it, and I'm glad it's there because it gives me some kind of like tactile comfort that mm. what's happening, that my mind, my 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 critical mind, my objective thoughts can take it, break it down, and understand it, and feel at some level comforted by comfort the emotional side of me. It's like, man, I've had a lot of emotional moments sitting over top of a dead animal, and and what is that really? You know, am I, is that a natural resource when I sit there over this, you know, dead elk and there's emotions flooding that I probably wouldn't let anyone else see, you know, like, is it a natural resource then? Well, fuck no, it's not. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I've got to understand those two elements. And so that's why I think that the, uh, this idea of, of taking the North American model and seeing if we can like either merge it or, or have it be parallel with these two ideologies is important because it's a way to kind of shut off this 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 argument that I've fallen into and been a part of that's like one is emotions and one is facts. I have emotions too. I'm not all facts. Like I have a lot of emotions when it comes to wildlife. Uh, I spend a lot of time thinking about it. So it's it's not as it's not fair for that for that part. So I mean that's I guess that's the tension that you so accurately called out. I mean that it really is mm. there. It exists. I think it probably exists for a lot of hunters. It definitely exists for people that come to it as adults who we call emergent hunters on this show, it exists for them in spades because they have, when you, when you get introduced to killing an animal at the age of 12, you don't have the emotional capability to understand its impact on you. And when that emotional, and when that emotionality gets normalized through your teenage years, you come out the other end going, animals die. That's what I do. I'm not going to think about why or how, or what, you know, what I feel about this. I've been doing it since I was 12. It's, you know, it's the same as anything else. And so we get all these new hunters that come through the door and they go, I feel super emotional about this. Can I talk to somebody? And, and 20 years ago, Hunter would say, no, you can't talk to me about that. Like, we're not talking about the emotions of it. Get the hell out of here. Um, and so we've seen, I think we've seen a bit of a change there, but I don't, I don't know that there'll ever be an answer to, to that tension. Mm. I don't know. I certainly don't have one at this moment. Well, Ben, I do appreciate your emotional vulnerability on the podcast today i feel <laughs> well i told the, the listeners <laughs> recently that i go to marriage counseling and people are like really i said yeah man this is what it is i voted for biden i go to marriage counseling i'm emotional about animals i don't know what you want me to do <laughs> no, get seriously. mad be happy you know? <laughs> seriously i think it's great that you have you you are you are honest in that 
you you relate how you have an emotional response and you know of course knowing you how i how i do you know over these few years that doesn't surprise me because um i almost think if you don't have an emotion like you described i'm not going to say i'm not going to go so far as to say like there's something sociopathic about it. i would say there's got to be some kind of suppression i mean it's a natural thing even i mean for me it's like i'll tell you a weird story yesterday i came out of my apartment and there was a bee on the sidewalk in its death throes you know it was like the end of its life and it was just struggling and struggling and i crushed it because i was like it was a mercy kill you bastard <laughs> <laughs> i did i'm admitting it on the but but Headline. the point is the point is i i felt i i felt like i i felt an emotional it was a bee but i i really you know i was like I just crushed it, but I felt like I didn't want to watch it suffer. Now, um, now, uh, I feel like to just not have any kind of emotion attached to it, I think uh, that makes me feel uncomfortable. I would rather have someone <laughs> say, yeah, it was really difficult, and I pulled the trigger, and I fed my family. And yeah, there was a – I felt I, – I thought about that. That seems like, okay, well, yeah, that, that's, that doesn't that – doesn't, the thing that scares me is someone who says, <laughs> "I don't give a shit. I just shoot everything." But um, but but, but Agreed. I do want to. I wanted to go back to something. So you you were going to also address the issue of sustainability oh, yeah. as being mm -hmm. a, a, like a, a kind of key criterion for this this view yeah. of conservation. Yeah, and I think um, you mentioned kind of sustainability on a broad scale being impossible. Agree. I think the North American model agrees with you. It says, "Well, shit, we can't do it." on a continent level we have to do it on a state level or a regional level and most state and most if not all that i know of state game agencies are built on like specific regions regional biologists who report into you know state game agencies who have game commissions and who are and who then um like in montana they say here are the game laws for this year here's how many you can kill here's how here's how many animals you can go and kill um, based on the population sizes, based on you know what are, what's what we're seeing on the ground. Let's say you know chronic wasting disease hits a certain region. That regional biologist is going to go, whoa, 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 hold on. Maybe we can't hunt deer this year. Maybe. And so for me, that sustainability can be localized. It is localized in the North American model. And I think that that Geist and Mahoney like hat tip to, hey man, we know that this isn't sustainable on a broad, broad level because we know that population dynamics the dynamics of ecosystems uh, from one to another are different and they do need to be seen as different and they do need to be managed uh, locally as locally as we can. Now that's, it is not perfect. There's right. a lot of state game agencies that catch a lot of flack from hunters and non hunters alike over many things, including wolf, reintroduction of wolves, um, you know, the re the hunting of grizzly bears and, and on and on we go. We generally make that, make those points around charismatic predators, but um, there's a lot of debate about uh, things like uh, here's something that you probably never heard of. Antler point restrictions is something that has happened within the deer hunting population where it used to be in, in many states you could shoot any any legal deer could have spikes or above, you know, if it's, mm -hmm. if it's antlers on its head. So many states have put in antler point restrictions because they know if you allow a deer to mature, you know, that's going to help the population. So the biologists and the game commissions are saying you can't shoot them unless they have three on one side. Because obviously that denotes the age and maturity of the animal, thus a healthier population. 
given the dynamics. And so those things are, I think, are at play. It's not perfect, boy. It's human, so it's it's a very imperfect way to do it. I think. Um, but it, at least for me, it addresses the sustainability in a very local, regional, and even ecosystem level way. Mm-hmm. Um, and and on this show, we've definitely talked about things like trophic cascade. And when you when you take a predator out of a landscape, what does it do? When you put a predator back into a landscape, what does it do? And so, um, I think that answers a bit of the sustainable question for me. Yeah. Um, it also just. I was thinking of this when you were talking earlier. It's it's almost as if if there were two doors and, and, and you said, listen, you could walk through two doors. One is animal rights. You're not going to ever kill anything. And if you do, it's going to be with understanding that it might be merciful or it might be absolutely necessary and, you know, and, and you might be starving and need to eat. And then the other one is you're going to take part in this, you know, something that has sport and game like qualities and you enjoy it. And it, it gets, it, it makes you feel all weird and happy and you don't understand why killing makes you happy, but you're going to go through that door and on the other side is like an understanding and value system conclusion. I've walked through the hunting door and I'm like, dude, I'm, I don't know what the other door is like, but this one is adding to my care mm. and adding to my value. And, and I don't know a life that doesn't have this, but I know what it's done for me, right? I know that um, it's, it's really understood. And, and I guess a good example of that, Robert, would be I have a four-year-old son and – you know what little boys tend to like to do? They tend to like to crush bugs, you know? Like, mm-hmm. he was... I killed an ant the other day. And we, and I sat him down. We had a conversation about ants. And I said, listen, man, we don't kill ants here. <laughs> like, we don't... Or we don't kill birds. We don't kill ants. We don't do that. We don't kill things unnecessarily. And you know how I learned that? Hunting. You know, like, I learned the... Nece- like, kind of the dynamics of killing and and he's four and he's like okay no more birds daddy and that was it but that was more me talking to myself than him but it, it did help me understand like this songbird i appreciate and i would never want to kill it because i can't eat it it's not a natural resource to me now it's it's something different so that dynamic would be interesting to hear your thoughts on kind of how whether you think that's like me just all of this is like are, am i just constructing something to make myself feel comfortable about killing or is this really, you know, a, a, a really a tactile way to live your life that helps with some of the many dynamic and complex problems we all have with with uh, cohabitation being one of the main things? Well, man, I'm glad that you shared another. I'm learning so much about it. Well, I, mean, <laughs> I, I knew that you were a vulnerable, but now you're sharing how wonderful a father you are. I'm one vulnerable son of a bitch. Yeah, you no, are, that was a humble, humble I'm brag if there ever was one. You are you are a model father to sit down with your son. And, yeah, and then we had a, a, hey, listen, and then we had a Mountain Dew and watch cartoons. So I don't know. Okay, that's <laughs> cool. I, I, I dig it. But um, no, that that's a wonderful lesson to learn. Like why unnecessarily, you know, kill these beings? I think um, so. That's that. I I my hats off to you on that on that front. Um, I do think that. Uh, and I and I like your response about you know acknowledging that sustainability it has to be local and it's it's not something that is generalizable over the whole planet. Um, here's here's a little you know again I'll, I'll reiterate I'm a philosopher so I'm going to throw a thought experiment <laughs> that's at what, you. That's why we love you. <laughs> so look Ben here's here's a here's a thought experiment from a from an animal rights ethicist. So let's go back to your you have your two doors to choose from. 
Mm-hmm. And the way you put it was, yeah, on the one hand, there's like the animal rights world where you don't kill anything unnecessarily. And, you know, you don't, you know, if you have to. But uh, And in the other door, you have this life of hunting where you are doing sustainable killing. And um, now let me throw a twist in, like kind of a Twilight Zone twist. So what if I said, um, uh, see that door? You, here's something you don't know about either door. When you go through that door, you don't know if you're going to be an elk or a human. Mm. So you have to choose, but you can't choose front loading, mm-hmm. know where you're going to, you don't, you're, you're not going to know where you're going to be in the hierarchy. I love it. Now I'll let you answer, but I have a feeling that throws a, that, I don't say throws a wrench, but that adds complication to the decision. And I think the sure. animal rights person wants to say, what that shows is that there's a human bias built in when you mm-hmm. talk about this kind, these kinds of choosing which way to go. And the animal rights person says, I, what I say is, well, if, if, a, if the possibility I could be an elk, then certainly I'm going to choose the first door. <laughs> yeah, don't right? shoot me. Yeah, no. Um, so. <laughs> Don't shoot me in the lungs. <laughs> I'll only run 200 yards before I die. Um, right. I am delicious. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think... Uh, <laughs> wait, this would be like a game show that we could do. <laughs> Is if you walk through this door, you're an elk and some hunter's going to chase you around. <laughs> be a, I think we could probably get Drew Carey to run it. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild. But searching for property can be a maze. That's where Land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to Land.com today to turn one day into today because trust me there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth there's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the sunshine state or any other destination on your fishing bucket list book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids 
With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. I think what you're asking is like, do you have the ability to be empathetic here? You know, do you have the ability to see this animal for what, you know, what you believe, at least an animal rights believe it truly is with this like sentient being that doesn't, that no matter how you reason it and no matter how you structure something like a model or a value system in your own life, no matter how you do all those things, you still have to come to the point where you're killing something that doesn't want to die. Like it, it would prefer not to die. And guess who shares that sentiment with that elk? I do. I would not like to die. I don't want anybody to shoot me with an arrow. <laughs> like especially, <laughs> especially an awesome broadhead that it's like that has a two inch cutting diameter that's meant to slice me in half, so I can, <laughs> so I only bleed out over a couple of minutes. You know, like I don't, fuck, I don't want that at all. Um, and so yeah, I mean, I think once I walk through those doors, if I'd had a chance as an elk to understand what I know now, I'd probably say like, boy, this, you know, what's better getting eaten by a wolf or getting shot by a hunter. I don't know, but I don't want to die. Like right. I, I'm an elk. I don't want to die, you know? And so I think that it, it, when you walk it back that far, I mean, yeah, there's nothing left left to say is like, we share, you know what we share with animals? We don't want to die. No, nobody, no, no sentient being is born with the idea of its death as, you know, really death is an, an inevitability, but the way you die, you would, you certainly like it to be your choice. Right. Um, well, Ben, I think, I think that, and that's a very thoughtful answer. I think it's not merely, I shouldn't say merely, it's not only about, um, it's not only shining a spotlight on empathy. It's also sure. the thought experiment, as I described it, it's, it's shining a spotlight on whether or not we are capable of being objective when we're making right. ass- assessments about value, who's valuable and who isn't. And so, and so w- what I'm saying is, look, I can't help but be biased towards non-human, you know, in favor of human. I'm a human, right? But mm-hmm. that's not a justification for it. And I'll give you an obvious counterexample. If I say, hey, uh, Hey, what race do you want to be on the other side of that door? Uh, you don't really know. If I say, well, I mean, look, I'm a white dude, so I, I think I want to be a white guy. Um, that that gets a little bit prickly. Like, it's like, wait, hold on a second. What's right? So, so if I think, well, you know, should everyone be subject to the same laws? And I'm trying to decide this before I walk through the mm-hmm. door. And then someone says, oh, by the way, when you get on the other side of the door, you don't know if you're going to be white, black, indigenous, a woman uh, in a wheelchair, right? Then I go, oh, you know what? I better make sure that the laws <laughs> cover everyone as opposed <laughs> to, I know that I'm going to be a middle-aged white philosophy professor. Yeah. And then I'm like, oh, I don't care, you know? So I think the, the thought experiment is important for, for the animal rights person because what we say is, to try to be objective, and again, not to dismiss empathy and emotion, that's very important, but to try to be objective when we're deciding, when we're choosing which values we should base our society on, sure. part of that objectivity has to, has to remo- is to remove ourselves from this privileged position and saying, 
Well, I don't have to worry. When I choose a door, here's what I know. I'm cool. <laughs> Everyone else is screwed. <laughs> so you, when you take that away, um, that's part of the the, you know, the challenge yeah. of the animal yeah. rights position. I, I wish you would have uh, given me this thought experiment way. Like, I wish I would have had this. I'm going to use this a lot because I like the thought experiment because <laughs> I think it drives at many things. Though I guess it, what I would, to take it a little bit further, I think in, in terms of objectivity, no matter, if I walk through the door, right, and... And you're going to tell me no matter which one you are, elk or human, elk and humans both exist in the same numbers that they do today, in the same habitat, the same landscape. So on, a, on an objective basis, we're going to have to make a decision at some point about how those two things coexist, right? You know, one eats the other, the other doesn't eat the other. You know, elk don't eat humans, but humans eat elk, right? And that's been, as long as there's been humans and elk, that's how it's been, right? So we can't re-engineer that. So... At some point, as we boil down from kind of like the broad-based thought experiment and we get closer to the actual interaction between an elk and a human, we then have to start to uh, like unravel this, what happens when, you know, particularly elk in this case, um, come into conflict with humans or are, you know, you have a farmer, he's got a crop field, that's his livelihood and a thousand elk come walking in and start eating his crops there's nothing he can do. He can't, he, he can chase them off. They'll just come back tomorrow. They're elk. They don't give a shit about his crops. Um, just as though, just as we can make that value judgment between elk and crops, elk can make the value judgment between that dude's crops and going up in the mountains and eating some clover. Ladies can't. Um, they're going to take the easiest path to staying alive, right? And so we have, once we get down to like the actual beating of the cohabitation heads together, like, what do we do together here? Then we can really start to talk about like, even if you have, which I, I, like I've said from the beginning, you and I share a lot of the same values around like the animal itself. Like shit, man, I, I, I love elk. And so, but what happens when we get in that situation? How do we deal with it? And this is kind of the same conversation I had with Paul Bashir. We got into arguing about rice and shit for like an hour. It was really probably boring to the listeners. But we got into this, like, the it always, to me, boils down to, like, how do you see that relationship? And then when death happens, what's the result of that death? Because in nature, death is almost always a good thing. I mean, I would say always a good thing. It's a good thing for other animals. It's a good thing. And so if I walk through that door and I'm an elk, I'm like, well, no matter how I die, something's going to eat me. And in the case of a human, all I'm going to do is die. They're going to bury me in the ground and nothing, the bugs might eat me. But, you know... There's there's a whole different um, a thought process there, but you're not going to tell the elk that when he's walking around. Like, hey man, listen, if you die, it's going to be great. Something's going to eat you, and you're going to be you're going to be a, a food for something. You never tell the elk that. He'd probably be like, fuck that. He can eat some other elk. Um, mm. And so that's I guess the thought the thought experiment when taken to its attempted conclusion just shows us that goddamn this is it's hard. It's like the individual thoughts and like the reality of our, our being really. Did I take no, that I, way off into the wilderness <laughs> or is that, that makes sense. No, that, that, that makes total sense. I, and uh, yeah, when the rubber meets the road, you have to make some decisions. If your mm -hmm. if your crops are getting destroyed and you have, you have a, you know, a bunch of elk, then you have a conflict of interest. Now you have to resolve the conflict of interest. And then how you do that, of course, is, is a matter of, of debate. So, um, I, that, I think that's when I would just, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I think that's no. the core debate because I, I've, yeah. I've seen that kind of played out so many times. 
and and I think we always get to the point where it's like we're debating the reality of the situation. I almost would agree with you more in the theoretical. Me and you, I think theoretically are are right there, man. Like yeah. we're we're basically in the same spot. Um and the practicality of the situation or just like that the conflict or really like my own humanity versus the the elkiness of the elk, right? Like those yeah. things are, you know, that really becomes the conflict in my mind. If if I can ignore kind of, of how it's always been and I can ignore how delicious an elk is or a, a, an elk is and not eat one. But that damn elk, if he's hungry, he's going to go find the easiest, most delicious, most calorie and in, in, inducing food. Cause he's trying to survive. Right. So he's, that elk is not able to make a decision like I am. And, Hence, sometimes the conflict. But to be clear, hunters aren't just hunting for to mitigate conflict. Like that's you know, so that that's not what's right. happening when I go out there. To be clear, so I'm not. I don't want to make that. I don't want to get that too entangled. But just following, kind of just following that that theory that you that we're talking about. Well, if you want to look at the, you said you wanted to. I don't want to. I don't want to monopolize. It's your, it's your program. I don't want to sidetrack us too much from, you know, Please the North do, American man. model, but I, no, it, um, I mean, I think we're talking about it and all these subjects yeah. kind of go back to it. We don't need to break it down tenant by tenant. Well, I, one of the things that in the, in the animal rights world versus the, here's what's interesting, you know, environmentalists. So if you, if you, if you take like a gross, you know, coarse grained, generalization and you think like, oh, you have these tree huggers and you got the vegans and the, you know, the hippies, you got all, and you sort of put them in the one category. But in reality, in the world of, of environmentalists and animal rights people, there's a great, and I'm sure you know, there's a great tension between the environmentalists and the animal rights people because, and this goes back to our conversation we are just having, which is, um, do I value the ecosystem, do I value the systems, the, the whole, do I take a holistic approach or do mm. I value the individuals that constitute the ecosystem? Right. Mm. And, and so these debates have been running for 50 years, at least in the animal rights versus environmentalists, which is, look, it's okay to kill elk as long as a, you're doing it, as you said, sustainably and B you're doing it in order to mitigate mitigate a greater harm to the ecosystem, right? And and so that's kind of that's taking this holistic approach where the individuals, the lives of the individuals are like subordinate to this to the to the system, the, the health and the stasis of the system. Yeah. And of course the animal rights person is gonna say, those are individual sentient beings. You can't just calling is 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 a euphemism for just Wiping out, you know, insentient beings. Now, 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 I think what the animal rights person wants to say is, look, is there any other way to do this? Because when, <laughs> yeah. we, when, yep. when we look at human beings and you go, okay, look, by the middle of the 20th, 21st century, we're going to have 9 billion. By the end of the 21st century, we're going to have 10 to 11 billion humans. Homo sapiens are destroying the planet in population numbers. Um, now, how do we solve that? Well, we don't say, well, we have a lottery and then whoever loses goes to the, you know, to the, the great gods in the sky. We, we, we talk about, I don't know, birth control. We talk about all these, all these ways and to, to mitigate population growth. When it comes to animals, what the animal rights person says is, look, 
the animals deserve the same kind of thought process as like, how do we mitigate the damage to the environment while still trying to respect the individual sentient beings who can, who constitute it? And, you know, the environmentalists say, look, you know, this is, nature just works like this. You, you know, you, you eliminate the, the individuals and it makes the system, the ecosystem comes back into equilibrium. So um, I think that's an important distinction to make when you're talking about how can we integrate animal rights or, or how can these things fit together with the, the wildlife management? I think we mm. have to address, well, do our, what are we really caring about? And of course, again, the animal rights person is going to say, well, you guys, and I mean, when I say you guys, I mean the environmentalists who are, who, who think, think at the systems level, the ecosystems level, you guys you're all about ecosystems, except when it comes to humans. So the bottom line is all humans get to do whatever the hell they want. They can procreate as much as they want. They can make as many babies as they want. They can live wherever they want. They can do whatever the hell they want to do. And then for all the other beings on the planet, then we control their numbers. And that's right. And so the animal rights people want to say, uh-uh, that again, that, that is an anthropocentric bias. And if you want to look at one species who's destroying the planet more than any other species. If that's really what you're worried about, we all know who that species is and it ain't an elk. So I think that that sort of encapsulates this tension that's been going on between environmentalists and animal rights activists, this yeah. argument that's, you know, I don't know the answer to it. I think it's very complicated, but I think it's important to acknowledge that these are, these are tough problems to, to try to, you know, address. Yeah. I think the one thing, I guess there's two things I would say to that. And one is the elk probably would destroy the ecosystem if allowed to. And in fact, sometimes they do. Um, if you just, if there was no predators, if there was, if they were left unchecked, they don't have, the, other than disease and winter kill and, and, and things that would naturally kind of hone in those populations, those elk never have a thought one about conservation or the landscape they're on. They have, you know, certain biological cues that they work from which is sex sex procreate procreate eat 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 live 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 i mean that's that's what they are right and given how ecosystems function you have to have some sort of check on that and normally it's predators right so they are i think the argument uh, an environmentalist or, or animal rights person might make like it doesn't need to be us checking them right we could put wolves in there they'll check them put by put, put grizzly bears in there and they'll check them so i think that's that's one thing I've often said that about wolves in my experience is wolves will just keep eating. You know, we see wolves as like they might just, there might be there for a balance. Wolves don't think about balance. They're meat processors on four legs. Like they're, they're a carnivore in the true, truest sense and a predator in the truest sense. And so, you know, I guess there's where, you know, Dr. Valerius Geist, who was, was the, the really the, the main author of our model of conservation, told me earlier this summer he just said the words intelligent intervention. And then when he said that to me, I thought, well, there, like if there's two words that could encapsulate what you're talking about just there, right? Like this idea that uh, of leaving them alone or managing them, you know, we, we acknowledge we're different. We acknowledge we have a, a, a degraded impact on the landscape and we acknowledge all those things, but we have to, intervene intelligently because we have that intelligence to make those ethical and moral choices on behalf of the animals because they don't. They'll eat the grass if the grass is there. They'll kill the elk if the elk is there. Don't much care um, because they just have biological cues that drive them. So I 
I guess the first point, I, I'm, I'm not as hard on the first point, but man, when I heard, you know, kind of the father of this model that I've studied and studied say intelligent intervention, I thought, okay, like to me, that's, that, if we're going to intervene, that's the type of intervention that we need to do. Intelligent intervention doesn't say killing. It doesn't say, it doesn't say what type of intelligent intervention that we're doing, but it just says we have the ability to intervene intelligently and boy, we ought to. Um, for the sake of every every species, every being. So it doesn't that I, I don't want to that's not a concept that I think has anything to do with hunting. I think it has to do with what you were just speaking about there, which is very much just we have to intelligently intervene and then we have to have this debate, you and I and people in our positions have this debate about what that intelligence is and how that intervention takes place. You know? And but but I think I, I I'm firm that in, in we have to intervene in some way, whether it's policy making to say never kill or it's policy making to say only kill a little bit. I think we have to intervene intelligently. Well, now on now now the philosopher is going to shed the theoretical and abstract <laughs> and come down to the practical, and I'm going to say right, we did it. <laughs> I'm going to say okay. Here's what I want to say, Ben, and that is, I agree with you that and in the at the abstract intelligent intervention is is probably unavoidable it's probably indispensable mm-hmm. however as you know maybe i'm just a little bit cynical when i think that human well let's look at the track record of the of the phrase intelligent intervention and i think we ain't doing so well so um i i look around and go like are we are we really going to leave humans <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing. It's, it's, it's laughable. Like, look at what we've done to the planet. It's, it's insane. Yeah. So our, and now again, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm saying at the level of theory, it would be great if we could have some intelligent intervention and we used the best science we have to understand ecological relations and understand, um, uh, uh, stasis and these kinds that I'm totally on board with that. I'm just saying, as as a human who's been on the planet for a few decades, I get a little nervous when we're relying on intelligent intervention to solve problems. Um, so that's a so, that's a very <laughs> point well made, um, <laughs> Mr. Jones. But but no, I I, I agree. Look, here's what I I think we this is a you made a really great point. I wanted to just reiterate, and that is, it's not really about like when you talk about intelligent intervention, and you go, look we. You can think of it like this is triage. We have to do something. We can't do nothing. Mm-hmm. And and hunting is just a subcategory of doing something. It's not hunting versus not hunting. I think that's a really important point to make. That yeah. that once we recognize we can't do nothing, then we look at all the options that are on the table. And then you have these different values we bring. Um but you know, I think it's important too to say that uh I mean Somewhere like New Zealand, uh, there were no predators in New Zealand for tens of thousands of years. And I don't, you know, again, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to counter the view that, well, if there's no controls, then things are going to go out of whack. But the point is, um, there have been places on the planet where there have not been predatory controls. There have been other kinds of controls. And things kind of seem like they were okay until, you know, humans came and introduced predators in New Zealand, right? So now New Zealand has a massive, you know, they're doing a, a they have invasive species. I mean, we, you and I could spend hours talking about, <laughs> quote, invasive species. But Oh, but, that's um, one of my favorite topics right now. It's like, why yeah, do we, so, yeah, oh, oh, we better um, get, hey, 
hey, mate, we better get in a helicopter and kill all those tar. I'm like, why? <laughs> because they're not native. I'm like, what? The, you're a little tiny island. The only thing that's left native there's a parrot. Like, what are we? Exactly. What are we even discussing? Like, you talk about a theoretical discussion. My Jesus. So yeah, I mean, so that's the kind of thing where, um, uh, my, you know, my maybe this is more of an intuition, but my. Uh, you know, I think you'll agree with me. With this. Here's my, here's my, it's more of a general kind of feeling. And that is, you know what, human beings, um, shit can be okay without you messing things up. Like, like nature, quote, nature has been around a long time before human beings. If, if Homo sapiens, you know, are a quarter of a million years old, if that's what our best science tells us. Nature and, and, you know, the planet as we know it has been around for a very long time. And for us to think that without us intervening, shit's going to go sideways, I think you would agree to say, no, no. Like, we, the reason why we have to intervene is because, and, and a large part, is because we keep fucking up, right? Mm-hmm. And, I'm not, I'm not, and I, I, wanna, I just want to make it clear. I'm not a primitivist where I'm saying we all need to return to, you know, <laughs> shun clothing. I'm not saying that. I'm merely trying to say that it's not a bad idea to, to step back sometimes and say, wait a second, let's just question this assumption that we're, we're working under, which is humans make things better. We improve, you know, we, we, we take a resource and it's sitting there doing nothing and we come and make it. It's like, those forests that are seeing their quote doing nothing, they've been doing nothing for tens of thousands of years oh, without yeah. us, and they're doing fine. So yeah, to be clear, um, as you asked me, like, what's the North American model? I said, well, a hundred years ago, we really fucked this place up bad. <laughs> right, <laughs> like, right, right. <laughs> so right. the point, like, our whole point, the point of this conversation, or the point of the model itself, was like, we never want to go back to what happened at the turn of the century. You know, we never want to go back to that. And this is the best figure, best way we can figure out how to get there. Um, and that's, you know, and it, and I think it acknowledges if we were, if there was no humans, it probably be, it would probably work out just fine, but there are humans. And so, as you mentioned, we got to kind of on a, on a larger, broad scale, do triage. I like that term in terms of, of, of how we cohabitate and manage wildlife because triage is probably a pretty good term for what we're trying to do. And then on a, on a local level, on a personal level, boy, I'm just one little part. I'm just one little stitch in that triage. If we're sewing up a wound, I'm one little stitch. But boy, just being that one little stitch makes me gives me this human value that I that I've tried to articulate here with you and and for three damn years on this podcast. And so I feel like, you know, man, if I if I am a little piece of of us stumbling around in the dark trying to figure this out. Um, it's helping me as a human and it's helping define a little bit of how I move through the world. And that, that, that to me is like, well, I'm willing to be a part of, of the, of us stumbling around trying to figure it out. Cause eventually maybe Robert, there'll be a thing where there's a small band of hunters. There's maybe a million of us and, and we, no one else kills things, but they come along and we show them what's up. Hey, here's how humans used to be. And we say, look at that. We'll shoot that elk right there. We'll eat it. And then they go back to their lives and they go and get their lab-based hamburger and they eat that and it tastes <laughs> like that meat. They didn't have to kill shit to get it, but they understand what killing looks like and, and, and what it might mean. And then they get to enjoy that lab-based hamburger all the more because they understand, you know, what their forebears did. <laughs> Those damn cavemen that, that were killing animals. I, at some point, I think um, that's why you'll find 
here at Meat Eater, I, I don't want to speak for everybody, but I definitely feel kind of an admiration for not particularly plant-based meat because it still has a it still has a big effect on our environment, and it's probably not that great for us in its current form. But uh, lab-based meat, I, I've I've come to be like, hmm, that could be a good solution. Like that, yeah, man, you can make a lot of that shit, and uh, probably wouldn't affect a whole lot of people, and it would be a nice way to mitigate what we all know is a problem outside of you know the 11 million or so hunters that are out there because that number can't really grow it can't mm. grow to 50 million 100 million it can't because uh, our our ecosystems and our animal or wildlife populations can't maintain that demand so there is a supply and demand part of this which, which mm. certainly certainly doesn't feel animal rights e and it's and <laughs> how i stated that but um uh, at some level that's where we are you know we, we know that this thing isn't isn't the ultimate solution, but maybe it's like one stitch in the triage. Um, and boy, it feels really, feels like a, a uniquely human endeavor, if not maybe uh, anti-modernistic in a way that it's carried out. I bet. I, you know what I like what you said is the part about, I mean, I liked everything you said, but I like, I was, the thing I zeroed in on was your description of us sort of stumbling in the dark. And I, <clears throat> that's, 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 you know, what philosophers like to call epistemic humility, which is a 50 cent term that says, look, don't assume that you know everything, right? Like we start yeah. out with this view that says, like for me as an animal rights person, for me as someone who is uh, a vegan and, and trying to go through the world, following principles that decrease harm in the same way that you do, Ben, right? You, you don't, you, you told your son, no, don't un unnecessarily step on ants, right? So it's interesting we share that kind of thing, but I, I also feel like, just like you do, it's like, look, this whole thing is so crazy. It's so gigantic. There's so much interconnectedness when it comes to ecosystems, when it comes to killing and death and food feeding humans. And 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 I feel like, Look, I'm just trying, I am kind of stumbling around. I don't have all the answers. I just want to leave the planet a little bit better when it's my time to shove off, to have the humility to go, I'm trying to figure it all out. And I have this really discreet and limited amount of time. You know, if, if I lived a thousand years, I might be able to figure something out. But in the short time that I have, I'm doing the best I can. And so I think that's important for all sides of, the, of, these, of this question. And, and when it comes to going back to the issue of, of wildlife management, it's like we can do the best we can, but we should always do so humbly with, with humility and, and, and saying um, we're, trying the, we're trying in all earnestness and all sincerity to do the best we can to mitigate harm. I, yeah. I think that, you know, yeah, that's a I, lot of overlap between you and I. I really do. And I think if we can all take a step back, you know, cause we've talked a lot this year on this show, even about kind of like the divisiveness of, of our cultures. And we were just talking about around the collection of people around this podcast. People are collecting around complex and almost at some points impossible ideas, right? Rather than taking those complex and impossible ideas and, and crystallizing them into two sides and beating each other over the head with those ideas, these people are gathering around these like, Hey man, you want to gather around and talk about some shit? We'll never figure out like, Oh yeah, man, I'd love to gather around and talk about some things that are existential, uh, and, and human, very human endeavors. 
Um, and that really is is ultimately the, the most warming thing for me to think about, that we're able to, you and I are able to get together and kind of just just agree upon the complexity of our situation, you know, and not say that I'm right or you're wrong or, or, or we can't have a, a productive discourse or even not even really a discourse, just an agreement that we're in this gumbo of, of human and animal complexities that will almost be never ending. It's a cause and effect game. It's not a single, it's not a zero sum game. Um, and so we're, you know, we're talking about, we're often talking about trade-offs and causes and effects and different things that are, that are not, a, it's not a deterministic game. Um, we know that we're working on it together. And I think ultimately that's, of doing this for three years, that's where I, I, I that's what I've learned. I've learned that, that we are doing this together and it's a point that we have divided ourselves into vegans and hunters was the point where we lost our ability to figure it out, you know, or at least, or at least get a little closer to the actual solution in and of itself. And so that's why, you know, having you on, man, I've always said, I'm like, man, we, you and I could probably take this on the road and fill theaters <laughs> full of people that want to listen to us jamokes talk about, you know, like two dudes <laughs> from opposite sides of the country talk about these ideas and the thing that's compelling about those conversations is not that we figure shit out or that I believe in hunting and you believe in animal rights and we can't and we're just yelling at each other that's not it what's compelling is that we're able to move forward slowly and um and we don't have to yell at each other to get there uh and so we're in a crazy world but at least that to me is something that we can we can figure out together and um and I'm glad to have done it. That's for sure. Yeah, me too, Ben. And I think you touched on something. Another thing that I find to be important and in some ways disconcerting, and that is, especially in our current political culture as well, it's like you and I and many people like us who, who are, you know, take, quote, you know, one side or the other, I think... The, our discussions are emblematic of something that's that's vitally important to having, as you said, discourse or having a discussion. And that is having a shared set of values and a shared set of beliefs that at some foundational level, like when you scrape from the top down, you, here's a vegan animal rights guy, here's a hunter, and you get start to dig and drill down, then you say, well, you know, Ben wants the world to be a certain way and Ben doesn't want to unnecessarily harm and Ben values things like animals and the environment and autonomy and, and Robert does this kind of stuff. And, and so that provides a foundation for a fruitful discussion. And the thing that I, I fear in looking at our current political situation is that for many people, it seems to me in the country, we don't even share any longer a kind of foundational notion of like what's valuable, like what truth, here's something like, what is true? Like, what is it? Mean? <laughs> like, what is truth? Is it like for most of us, truth is like something happens in the world. And then I, t I say a statement. And if that statement corresponds to what happens in the world, then we say it's true. Right? So if I say snow is white, you go, that why is that true? Because the stuff in the world separate from me is white. It's snow, right? And so 
just it's having that foundation where you're like, okay, yeah, that, yeah, we agree. Snow is white. Okay, cool. And it seems like the more I read, I, I get, you know, when I teach my students, I, I get a little bit, I get sad and I get a little worried because no. the very foundations of like, what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's bad, what kind of world, it gets disconcerting. So these kinds of conversations, I think that you and I have, um, and you know, I'm not, I'm not like here tooting my own horn. You're the one who, you, you, this is, you're the mastermind behind this. But what I, what I think is it's important. And we've talked about this before, man. It's important to model a kind yeah. of discussion on very important and sensitive topics where there are these differences, but at, at the fundamental level, there are values that are shared. And I think that's something we're really missing. And th- your, your podcast yeah. in my mind has always provided an example of how to how to engage with different ideas in a way that is it comes from a place of respect and it comes from a place of ultimately of wanting the same kind of world you know that that your mm. quote opponents might want so my hat is off to you for that well thank you thank you it means it means the world to me to hear that um and also i guess i'll end with this i think it's not only hunting and veganism or animal rights, however you shape that debate. I, I, I have a certain particular notion about guns. But I would say, at some level, uh, the polls, the two different ideas, are often, even though they're being marketed or, or told that they're on opposite sides and that they could never understand each other, the issue is that they're really thinking... Anti-gun people and pro-Second Amendment folks are both talking about, most of the time, the value of life, right? Control the guns to save lives. Give me some guns to save my life or my family's life. So they're both kind of comparatively talking about the value of life and how guns affect that value, right? And and same thing with hunting and vegan. We're both talking about the value of animals and, and how one action affects that value. And so... We're, people that are being told, it's often the people that are being told to disagree or being driven by ideologies or groupthink or confirmation bias to disagree with each other that often are coming from a place where they could agree. Um, as as always give that idea of starting in the same place and walking away with each other, walking away from each other. And as you get further away, you yell louder. Like that's just how mm-hmm. it works. And, I, and that's one thing I've learned over time is certainly that when you're being told that the other person over there is the enemy, it's most likely that you could probably find uh, something relational in your enemy that you could say, look at that. We think the same way about that. And then maybe uh, you won't have any enemies anymore. <laughs> I, don't, I certainly don't want any. And I've seen a lot of people in the media create enemies out of friends uh, to drive a narrative or to drive an action or to drive hate or fear when they don't have to. They could just say, Everybody get along. I know it's not as compelling as hating, but <laughs> just get along. Watch next week, you know, when we get along. <laughs> that would not be a good uh not be a good drop on that, cable that, TV. That does not sell newspapers. Ah, hell no, hell no. Uh, <laughs> well, Robert, thank you uh again for this. Always uh being so willing to come on and talk to us. And uh as I said, I think at one point in our lives you and I should take this on the road. Um and uh, once once there is a road to go on, I guess, <laughs> and we can get. And I am I am game for that because here's what I would: the people who show up to listen to this, you and I talk, I think there are people we we would um, 
we would like to hang out with. I mean, <laughs> whoever would show up to this kind of thing. Hey, I, after after the after we did our thing, we can go, you know, have yeah. a couple beers. And have a couple carry beers. The discussion yeah. On. <laughs> yeah. And the, whenever we get into the roaring twenty twos, when everybody's just out running around crazy with their vaccines, uh, maybe we can do it. All right. Keep keep me posted on that. Thank you so much, man. All right, brother. I'll talk to you later, man. Yep. That's it. That's all. Another episode in the books. Thank you to Robert C. Jones, the one and only. He is my favorite interview by far on this podcast. Wish it could have been in person, but I'm glad we got to do it. Glad we got to figure some stuff out. Thank you to Nuri Hong and everybody that's that's joined up. THC and the THC chapters all over the internet. We really appreciate you in every way possible. I got to tell you before we get into uh, some major news here in a second. I got to tell you. The Bear Grease podcast with our boy Clay Newcomb is now live and in color everywhere you might listen to podcasts, especially iHeartRadio and their app. Uh, have you listened? Obviously, you want to give your review, Phil. I've got an awesome uh, user review of the show I want to read, but Phil, you want to give your review of the Bear Grease podcast? Yeah, it's a tough podcast to sum up because it's kind of Clay. I feel like it's kind of like Clay Unleashed. That's my review. It's kind <laughs> yeah, of all, all, yeah. all the stuff he's clearly um, passionate about when it comes to hunting and hunting culture, specifically in the South. Um, so he yep. brings in a lot of folklore. He interviews all kinds of guests from doctors and professors all the way to just like old hillbillies he's known his entire life um, to talk about just various subjects you know the first episode is about mountain lions he's got episodes about hunting with dogs about owls just about so it's all it's i mean he like he just spans the gamut it's an interesting podcast it's a relatively quick listen it's only about an hour long but it's more produced than a lot of our other stuff so it's got an original soundtrack lots of like music um sound design sequences and stuff who's doing the sound design phil who's doing the sound design oh uh, I am Ben. Bam! <laughs> That's Phil the engineer playing in your ear holes. Uh, you're gonna want to listen to that. And I'll tell you, it's it's like this American life for for uh, as Clay would say, hillbillies. Um, yeah. <laughs> I would say that. And and he got a five star review from uh, Scott Harrison K. And the title of it is Bear Grease Podcast is the marrow of the world. And uh, he it says it reads, ain't this something? I told my mam and my pap I was listening to the Bear Grease podcast to trap and be a mountain man and acted like they was gut shot. They said, son, make your life go here. Here's where the peoples is. The Bear Grease podcast is for animals and savages. I says, mother goo, the Bear Grease podcast is the marrow of the world. And by God, I was right. Wow. And this is, yeah. Clay should uh, have that guy on his podcast. That's what I told Clay. I was texting with him. I'm like, yeah, I have that guy on, man. He 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 is rocking and rolling. Uh, so go listen to Bear Grease, man. It is a, a fantastical podcast. Um, and now, listen, Phil. Now we got to get into something that is uh, ex- incredibly serious. I imagine for for me, for you, and for everyone else, uh, and is 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 an important topic um, because I have a big announcement today. And again, it doesn't have anything to do with anything else other than the words I'm about to say to you. So um, listen closely. Over, I would say over the last three years, I've poured my heart and soul into the hunting collective. Um, 
and I, I've been grateful for the chance to tackle almost every debate and impossibly complex issue uh, we've come across here alongside everybody that listens, all the THC listeners out there. Yeah, most of most of what we can do and and figure out these complex issues is because we've had time. We've had time to think and react, reason and grow, and, and eventually find our way forward. And that time is, is essential. But now uh, our time will soon come to an end. Uh, the, the May 11th episode of THC, our 177th recording, will be our last recording, be our last episode. As Meat Eater continues to grow, my role has evolved and my attention is needed elsewhere. Uh, as director of all the hunting content for the Meat Eater brand, the smartest decision for our business, which is the business I care about, is to channel my focus into new content that's going to resonate with our audience. And I can promise you that I will bring the same thoughtful approach to our hunt content for the new and familiar faces, including Clay Newcomb, uh, that you're used to from this show. You know, at its core, this is hard for me to kind of ex- explain. And again, we have four more weeks to go, so we'll continue to talk about this. But, you know, at its core, THC really hasn't changed since we debuted it in uh, February 2018. The show is always meant to explore why we hunt through an ongoing conversation and there's always been guests from inside and outside of our community that have come to help us work through those conversations. Through each time we've had somebody on, we discovered these different perspectives on hunting, and we began to build a better collective vision for who we are and why we love this. In chasing that collective vision, I have learned to always actively challenge my own beliefs and the beliefs of my and our community. I have hunted for my own biases and I've tried to understand their impact on my worldview. I've become an admirer of ecosystem-level thinking and the North American model of wildlife conservation. I've strived to build a more inclusive place, promoting a diversity of not only backgrounds and skin colors, but also ideas. And early on in this program, I remember saying one time that I didn't want this podcast, I didn't want THC to be about me. It was always meant to be about us. But the truth is, This show has been a story about my life, and I imagine it will remain as a weird time capsule for who I was and who I have become. I created this show because I needed to find my own why. Along the way, it has grown and changed organically, as if we were all designing and building a kick-ass roller coaster while we were already riding it. Today, I'm happy to have had that opportunity to spend so many hours with every single one of you. And I'm proud that we've gathered around our shared passion for almost, for over, really over three years. You know, as for me and my future, I can't tell you, I am absolutely going to be right here at Meat Eater, helping this company achieve our collective goals. And I'm going to create impactful content along the way for you all. It's just not going to be here at THC. But listen, Phil, you know this, THC is not over yet. We've got four weeks to go to say goodbye to you all. And we've got uh, Phil, the engineer's first turkey hunt as the final most important thing we'll have done in the three years of this program. So there's still some fun left to be had. All I'm going to ask you guys to do is raise a white claw, have a drink, uh, digest this news. And we've got a few more shows. We've got more laughs, more conversations that will make us think. Uh, Phil, any commentary on your part about the the ending, the the... Uh, sunsetting of this here THC program. Uh, I kind of just wanted to leave it, leave it with what you said, Ben, because that was 
that was a great great kind of a statement there but i i told i told this to you when you first told me about this news which was that the timing of thc ending i mean you know you could say that there's like you know there's not like a good way for people taking this news but i would say it's the best possible way thc could be ending is right now around these chapters which started off <laughs> as a complete like offhand comment from you or me about Eric Hall mentoring someone in the Blue Ridge Mountains or whatever and I we said it could be oh like you could have the his it could be like American Legions and it could be one and it's the THC halls the the cult chapters and that it's, <laughs> it's actually happened and from what we heard like from Luke Reeves and Nuri and everyone on Facebook I mean this this thing it's this train's not stopping with the end of the podcast and it's sure. going to live on for who knows how long with the communities that you created and i know that that this news is probably hard for a lot of people to hear but i, I think it could it could not have been and the show could not be ending in a better state and i don't know yeah. if you agree but uh, i do agree yeah. yeah i do agree and i never you know you never know what to ex- expect when you talk to somebody like nuri or luke or somebody that's involved in the leadership and and those chapters, you never know um, how it's going to go. But he, what, what, what is important to me for everyone to know is that the connections that have been made because of this show in those chapters could not have been a better result of all the conversations we've had over the last three years. It could not. If, if I, me, me and Phil used to get excited over two people getting together to go hunt, but now we've got thousands of people getting together. And I can't tell you how heartened I am by that um, and how much I look forward to seeing what's going to happen there. And so, yeah, Phil, you're exactly right. And, and everything has to come to an end somehow, some way. And um, this, is, this is our way. And Phil's first hunt and the, these chapters into the future is how we're going to move forward. And I'm excited. I'm not sad. Um, I'm excited. I'm excited for what, what's going to happen in the short term and in the long term. And also, Phil, I think I could sell this microphone on uh, eBay and get get a sweet amount of money, a couple hundred bucks probably. Oh, yeah, sure. I'm not going to tell anyone, so don't worry about it. All right, thanks, man. Well, I appreciate it. Listen, everybody, digest this news. Come back next week ready to listen, ready to have fun, ready to be challenged, and we'll do it for four more weeks here at the Hunting Collective. Say bye, Phil. Goodbye. Ain't your gun and tune your bow We're the Hunting Collective Show Calling hunters new and old The Hunting Collective Show Working pick and shovel Or working pen in hand We congregate now As lovers of the land Mindful and we're focused We're just living for the search Dreaming of a fire And a salty Gilbert But we ain't coming back Till it's cold and late We're taking it slow so Clean your gun, tune your bow, we're the hunting collective show, calling hunters new and old, ain't no cold times old. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins.
Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today. 